what's the alternative,、hmm. right? That's the question that I asked myself at that time. Is what's the alternative to the circumstances? I could either fall into it and, like you said, become the victim of the circumstances, the things that were happening to me, or I could take a step back and and move forward in the best ability that I can. The lying and all those things, they served me at the time. They helped me. I'll also tell you the backstory or the flip side of it all, is that they became a habit. Everyone you meet every single day is fighting a battle you may know nothing about. We're all in the process of overcoming. I'm Justin Rin, and my story has been heard by millions of people through my book, my TED Talk, podcast interviews, TV shows, professional fighting, and my foundation, Fight for the Forgotten. I believe we are all overcomers if we choose to overcome. We all have the option. I've been given the opportunity to overcome childhood trauma, sexual abuse, immense bullying, depression, suicidal ideation, substance use disorder, and I am a two-time suicide survivor. We are here to have conversations with some of the greatest minds of our time. Get ready to be inspired and to receive the tools and game plan to win this fight called life. Thank you for being here, for showing up for yourself. You, me, we have overcome a hundred percent of our darkest days. I'm not done yet, and neither are you. This is your invitation to overcome. All right, we're we're rolling. I'm excited you're here. Now, before I slaughter your name, can you just say it? <laughs> say it. Say it for the audience so they know. Oleg Lohid. Okay, that's what、mm-hmm. I thought. Oleg Lohid. It's、uh, it's awesome to have you here. Amy's actually got your website up for people that are watching on YouTube, and it says, "Alone, you have a story.、Mm-hmm. Together, we have a voice." And that's powerful. I'm I mean, so into it. You're so into it. <laughs> Amy's all about voice helping.、Yeah. Uh, that's her gift to the world. It's her voice and helping people find theirs. We don't have that trademark just yet, so please <laughs> don't, don't take it away from us、don't、while、worry. we have it. Can you tell me where that inspiration came from? Honestly, I think the more I think about it, it came from my story. It、mm. came from my upbringing and the early childhood trauma, I guess you could say, and that's. As you can tell by the name, I always make a joke whenever I walk into the room, and that's I have the most common American name people come across, and everyone always breaks down in laughter because、yeah. <laughs> no one has the ability to even pronounce it on the first try. So, for me, the story begins in a relatively small town in Russia called Chibarkul, which is a relatively hot topic nowadays. In fact, every conversation that I have today, every single person asks me, "What do you think?" and I say, "I don't know." I'm not an expert. I'm going with the same information that you probably are. So, it's unfortunate what's happening there, but I just I don't have the expertise to resolve what's happening between Russia and Ukraine. So, <clears throat> going back to my story, it's that's where the origin was. I was born in Russia and had a relatively difficult upbringing. My mom, my mom was an alcoholic. My father was absent from the time of birth, and my sister actually ended up becoming my legal guardian from a very young age. What else? Age difference. Eighteen years old, eighteen years apart, and so it, it created a rather interesting, difficult dynamic between the two of us because I never really looked at her as a mother from that age. She was always my sister, my sibling, and all of a sudden the roles had shifted. And within that shift, whenever I, that shift happened, how old were you? This was probably three to four years old. Okay, three to four years old, and so she's young, like twenty one, twenty two, something. Exactly, like that.、Wow. and the other part of it is, I don't know if she wanted to have kids or not.、Mm. And all of a sudden, here was a kid on her lap, and it was either that, or I hit the streets, or I go into an orphanage. We didn't really have foster care. I, I don't think we still do. 
So it was, a, it was a bit of a challenge for me to accept the circumstances for what they were because I didn't want to let go of my mom. My mom was everything to me at the time and still is. And I decided to make the choice at the time and that is do whatever I can to bring the two of them back together. I wanted everyone to be under one roof and I tried everything I could and it didn't work out. It didn't work out. It, it, it led down a path where because my sister ended up becoming a, my legal guardian, there was a lot of resentment between my sister and my mom because my sister didn't want that role. In fact, there's a story that she shared with me and that is she was in the hospital and I was probably one to two years old and my mom was supposed to be watching me. And when my sister returned back from the hospital to the apartment that we all lived at, I was the only one there. I was covered in feces and I guess it had been multiple days before anyone was able to come back and, and see me. And so I don't really blame my sister for having the feelings that she did towards my mom, having the resentment, having the anger, having all these frustration moments that changed the relationship completely for the two of them. So I felt like I was a rock that was stuck between the two islands and I was trying to bring them two together. and. There became a point where nothing was working. Nothing was working and I had to make a different choice. And how old were you then? I think this was around nine years old. Yeah, and so you're you're literally thinking as an elementary aged Correct. kiddo, how do I bring my mom and sister together? Yes. And I how can I almost run the show not run the show, but like orchestrate? How yep. can how can I make these two come back together because we're family? Yeah, how do, I, how do I bring this family back together? And in that moment, I realized I couldn't do anything. And I'll tell you this, and I don't know if the two of you have ever experienced this, but for me, it was the most powerless moment I've ever experienced in my life. Mm. Talk about a moment of no hope, it was one of those. And so I looked at my circumstances, and once again, I don't know how I was able to make this following decision, but I did, and that's I chose to relinquish their rights completely. <clears throat> I gave up huh. my mom's rights. I gave up my sister's rights to me. And I became the ward of the state. At about I, nine years old? At nine years old. Wow. Because I guess no one would rent you an apartment to yeah. a nine-year-old kid. Yeah. So I had to go under guardianship of some, somebody at the time. So I went into an orphanage. And I lived there for three years. And I've seen pretty much everything I think one could see in that system. From nine years old to From 12 years old? nine years old to 12 years old. And then fortunately enough- Three years is a long time. Three years is a and, long time. And, and we're, I mean, Amy's daughter just turned 13. So when mm -hmm. she's 12 and just her being in the cast, um, remember how she's thinking she's going to be in a cast for like four weeks or uh, or six weeks and then surgery and the walking cast. It and it seems, seems like forever. It seems yes. like so long to her. Yeah. And it's such a huge portion of your life when you think about it in percentage. Three years. It is. Three years is a long time. And I'll tell you what, made it even more difficult. During the three years that were, I was there, I never felt like I could speak the truth to when my sister and my mom and my cousins came to visit. Mm. And the reason why is because the visitation room at the orphanage was located directly across from the director's room. And one thing that we were taught from the very get-go is that you never actually speak about what happens here to anyone, whether that's at school, whether it's people visiting you, and because the director's room was always across, I never knew when she was in the office and I never, know who, I never knew who was listening. So whenever my sister came to visit and she always asked the question of how is it, I lied for three years straight. What would I you say? I said it was great. 
That it was great. I said it was great. There's nothing happening. And yet maybe an hour before I was punished or two hours before I was told that you will never be able to see X, Y, and Z. We had one caregiver in particular. She was a social worker. She didn't really, I don't think she really believed in the concept of verbal resolution. It was all punishment through physical. So I'll give you an example. There were times where someone would misbehave or I would misbehave and would be immediately put in front of a whole room of all the other orphans within that family. And then she would order two of the older orphans to beat you in front of all the kids. So that was wow. that was the way they taught discipline. And when you say beaten, just for a visual, and it, it's even hard to ask the question, I think, but what do you mean? It's not like a spanking. No, it is not. It's a full-blown kicks, punches to the face. You're literally just falling down on your knees in the middle of the room in front of all the other kids, and the caregiver would be in the room, and everyone would see it as an example of what not to do. So it's, wow. it was extremely challenging. And I was very fortunate to have only experienced that one to two times in my life. I, I'm very proud of myself for having the ability to learn the lessons quick when needed, so I learned that after one or two times, this is something I'm, I don't want to be in. But there was one other kid who was my next door roommate. He That happened to him probably once a week, twice a week, where everyone was gathered in the same room and that's what happened to him. So it, it was traumatizing to be able to see that. But yeah, absolutely. I it mean, also created a false reality for me because I was living this life. And then when my sister came to visit, I had to tell her presumably some other life. And so for three years straight, in fact, until I want to say it was the last day when I was, a, a bef the day before I got adopted, I finally revealed her the truth. And I told her, I said, I'm sorry for lying to you, but this is what actually happened. Wow. And she said, I wish you could have told me I would have done something. And I said, what would you have done? Hmm. That's brutal. I, I mean, that sounds, sounds worse than prison. I mean, it's like childhood prison, but in like fight club inside of it. If, if you hear about prison guards, you know, punishing a, a prisoner by grabbing other prisoners and beating them in front of a group of prisoners, you, mm -hmm. the guy wouldn't most likely ever have a job again. I'm sure things like that have happened, but I mean that for a place that you think you're going to, can you set it up? Uh, I've listened to your, mm -hmm. your TEDx talk, mm -hmm. but whenever you went, you thought, you know, it was going to be a better imagine a better day or mm -hmm. this, this is what I have to do to go to a better situation. And you thought you were going to be surrounded by kids and family and, and love or support. And it was just the complete opposite. Mm -hmm. At that point, I didn't really have another option. Mm. I didn't really have any other options to look to, or the orphanage was really the only way to get out of the situations that I was in. And the situations I was in beforehand was I was constantly looking at my mom being drunk from day to day. And then there was tension between my sister and my mom, so I couldn't really resolve that. My dad was absent. So he put me in a lot of difficult situations where I had to figure out, what am I going to eat today? How am I going to go to the market next door and steal food? Where am I going to sleep? I might have to sleep on the street. So I've experienced all those things, and I realized that in that moment, all those events and circumstances really prepared me for this next chapter, but the orphanage was the only the only option. I didn't know what was going to happen there, and like you said, it. I thought it was going to be a better decision, and it turned out to be not the best one. But I'll also say this: as long as I could remember, I've always had an optimistic view to the world, hmm. and I think one of the reasons why is because 
why focus on the other one? The other one's already happening. So what's the alternative really? So I've always tried to maintain this positive outlook on life, even when things weren't going my way. And I think it was through that outlook and also a variety of other things. One of them was I used to climb on a windowsill every night at the orphanage. And I used to pray or ask for the universe for some help, whether it was better parents, whether it was a home, whether it was something that was going to get me out of the circumstances that I was in. And I believe looking back at it many, many years, I've, I got that thing. And it was an opportunity. It was my second year at the orphanage where I was able to perform amongst a group of other orphans in a folk singing program. So I make this ongoing joke that at the age of 10, I was becoming the Justin Bieber of Russia. <laughs> I was traveling across pretty much all of Russia and competing amongst other orphanages, other schools, winning these prizes. At the time, to me, I felt like I was winning a million bucks and really it was just a flip camera or a bicycle. But it gave me enough reassurance that if I pursue this, there's an opportunity for it to become something greater, something bigger than what my current circumstances are. And I believe that was the thing. Because a year later, I was able to be adopted. I was able to come to U.S. for a two, it was a two-week-long exchange program, perform in front of a group of parents who were looking to adopt kids from Russia in churches in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And then luckily, the family that I call my parents now, they decided to take a chance. But I was also, I was a 12-year-old kid at the time. That's or the, At the time, it was six years older than what's considered to be old in international adoption. Mm. So, so like I was coming. One, one I was to six years to US. old is, or like infant to six years old is kind of preferable. Prime, yeah. I was coming to U.S. with a completely different view of the world and a formed view of the world. I already knew who my parents were. I already knew what was happening within my life. I already knew everything that I could know at the time about life, and so here I am going into a completely different country, having to learn a completely different language having to learn the language of teenager, which is a completely different language of its own. Yeah. So it, it was it was hard. It was hard for many years. And I'm whenever I even talk about this now, I, I can't help but tear up whenever I talk about my parents. Mm. My adopted parents, they they gave it all. Mm. And I put them through a roller coaster ride. I I for the first two to three years, I would say it was the most challenging years for me because I didn't speak English. And so the only ways that I processed a lot of my emotions was just acting it out. So I remember numerous times when my mom and I would stand in front of each other and just due to the language barrier, we couldn't communicate with one another. I couldn't really tell her what was happening in school, the times I was bullied. I know you're, mm -hmm. two of you are big on that. So there's all these circumstances that I had to face on my own. I had to figure out there was no one there that was going to hold my hand. And if anything, I was just gonna have a support group like my parents who continue to believe in me that one day I'm going to find a way to work through all these challenges. This podcast is brought to you by onnit.com. onnit.com slash overcome. Use the code overcome to save yourself 10% on, I'm holding in my hands, the alpha brain focus shot. It's in this cool container. Amy's got the website pulled up for I you do. guys watching on YouTube. Did you drink your focus shot this morning? Absolutely. I, th I, I thought you did. I did too. Yeah. How do you like it? 
Oh my god, I feel so good. I always because it's an early right now energy. on a Monday. Yeah, you know what? Yeah. This is this is one of the earliest podcasts we've done. Well, this is early for you. Early for you. <laughs> well, to, to go on the show, yeah, for sure. And it promotes focus and energy, supports a positive mood state, helps manage mental stress, and for me, I truly feel like it helps me get in the flow state faster, stay there longer. Whether I'm going into sparring, I had one before I went to sparring yesterday, and I had a four and a half hour training session because they were stacked. So I went from 12 to 1.30 and then straight over to the gym from 2 to 4.30, 4.40. Came home tired last night, mm-hmm. but I was focused the entire time. I feel like it's very reliable about yeah. how I'm going to feel. The more I've used it, the more, doing this show really, the more I'm able to know that when I drink it, I'm going to be on point. My brain's going to be functioning really well. I feel generally good. And that's been so nice to be able to know that it is not going to suddenly make me jittery or suddenly make me feel nauseous or whatever it is. Yeah, well, that that for me is important because some of the products with caffeine, which just has some caffeine, but it's like plant-based and it's healthy and it's a low dose. It's not jittery bad. It's not jittery mm-hmm. at all. And sometimes I'll have, you know, one of those energy drinks or something and then I'm over caffeinated, over stimulated. And then I feel like I can't think as good That's not good. because it's, it's bothering me. Yeah. And all the alpha brain line is super reliable. The capsules, my favorites, the, one of my favorites are the instant then the black label and my all-time favorite is what we're talking about now. The Alpha Brain Focus Shots. They're incredibly good tasting. The tropical flavor. They also have peach, I believe. But mine's the tropical because it's passion fruit. And that's it delivers consistently. Fruit. And sometimes I'll take one and I'll split it between two smoothies when I make it for us in the morning. I'll just throw a little bit in each mm-hmm. and just, just adds a little something to like our protein powder and the fruit and whatever else we've got in there. Yeah, and thank you so much, on it for supporting me. My comeback to fighting, uh, Fight for the Forgotten, and this podcast. They make it possible. So please support our sponsors, who honestly, I think, have the best supplement line in the world. And yeah. Our favorite products, Alpha Brain or Total Human. Get the best in one packet uh, of morning support and a night support. Thank you, thank you, thank you for being here with Overcome with Justin Wren. And on it.com. Be sure to use that code. Mm -hmm. Use the code overcome. Save yourself some money. Yeah. And I mean, to say that they stuck it out with you and, and I mean, all this, I mean, it's incredible now because you've started a nonprofit overcoming odds and I'm sure they're just so proud of you, man. And for them to, were you their first or only adopted kiddo? I have a brother. Child? A brother too? They have a biological son. Okay. But for them to see, you know, we we did this and we love him and we're proud of him and we're his parents. And now look what he's doing for others. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, that's that's got to be so rewarding. I bet they're just so incredibly proud. And so good on you and them. And I'm just kind of thinking there's so many questions. But, I mean, you kind of talk about uh, almost through optimism for opportunity, Mm -hmm. that's a way that you've been able to overcome the odds. Mm -hmm. But if we go back a little bit, well, one, I'll go back to that in a second. But with you saying that the language barrier is there and you had to act it out, Mm -hmm. can you give us an illustration or like a a picture in words of, of what was that like with 
your your mom or your dad or or your brother like acting it out because you have no way to to say it a lot of screaming battles mm. a lot of back and forth so i don't know if the two of you have experience in this but one of the things that i faced as a challenge when i entered the the us school system when i was adopted i was put in the middle of 6th grade and i believe middle school was just a brutal period mm-hmm. to begin with kids that's, are brutal that's the worst sometimes for to bullying. begin with <laughs> from 6th to 8th grade is it the, truly the is. worst it truly is because i think most kids don't have an understanding of themselves as well as the people around them so if you have a pimple on the right side or the left side of your face not only is the person across from you going to know but the entire school is going to know by the end of the school day mm-hmm. and then from there it creates opportunities for all the kids to make fun of you for those things now i didn't know how to speak english i literally started with an english alphabet imagine that one of those alphabets you pick up the letter and it says a apple b banana and you keep doing that thousands and thousands of times until you get the letters right then you have to move on to the words and then you have to start forming sentences which to me was the most complicated process of learning english why does the sentence form this way when really logically it could maybe form better this way so all of these things i had to juggle at the same time as well as learning math and science and all these other subjects so there's a lot there were a lot of challenges at school that were happening simultaneously and because of it because of the fact that all the challenges were happening at school i didn't really have a space to process them so the way that i was processing them was through my parents whenever i'd come home i'd come home not have the ability to talk to my mom about what really happened because i don't really know the words or how to even say them and so the only way i could do it is through tears frustration and whenever my mom and i don't know if the two of you have ever experienced this from your parents but whenever my mom would say empty the dishwasher for example i'd become a rebel say no why i'd keep asking her why until the point where she either does it or we get into a back and forth for why it's important to empty the dishwasher but really the problem wasn't the dishwasher the problem was all the things that i was experiencing at school and they just happened to be an outlet for my processing so that's i think what made it really challenging between the two of us well not only that you were also hadn't processed 12 years of that too. trauma yeah 12 years of trauma the whole transition of coming from russia to us mm-hmm. everything was being different separated here. from your mom and being separated your, from your my sister. mom at that age like that's yeah. such a and you have body changes and everything else going on at that age that yeah, you're puberty like, hormones yeah <laughs> and, major yeah. and Yeah, like a perfect storm of just stuff. Literally. Yeah. Yeah. You you've gone through more than what most ever will experience. And 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 we all go through our stuff every single human being, mm-hmm. our human experience. But I think your story exemplifies overcoming odds. Mhm. And I think w- the other question I had was you said that you had this ability to learn quickly mm-hmm. because you didn't want to experience that pain or and I'm I'm trying to think if you could if you could go back and assess the difference between you and the optimism mm-hmm. you had and the way to i don't know be agile or mobile and and like observe and react and realize if i keep doing this there'll be more pain um and so i i think it was your optimism but i want to hear it from you and then mm-hmm. also that other kid or friend of yours that you had to watch him get beaten mm-hmm. 
once or twice a week. Mm -hmm. And what do you think the difference was between y'all? Because was it him not able to process his trauma, not having any optimism, uh, maybe just being stuck in pessimism? This is what I deserve or, or, or it's going to keep coming. So I'm going to take it on head on and show them that they can beat me as much as they want and I'll keep coming back. Or I'm just wondering what, from your perspective, what was the difference between you and him where it kept happening to him? Was he acting out? Was he, what, I mean, because everyone's different. I think part of it has to do with the story. And this is obviously 20 years later yeah. with the perspective that I have today. But I think a lot of it probably had to do with the story that he might have told himself compared to the story that I told myself internally. Mm. Mm. So he didn't perform well in school. And I don't know how that impacted him. I don't know if every, every time he received a D or an F, it just made him realize that, well, this is all I'm capable of. I'm not capable of receiving a B or an A. I was on the other side of that. In fact, I received A's across the board and whenever I received B's, for me, I, I try to work harder to get to the A. The challenge that the two of us had set for, I guess, for each other is that with his performance, A, I think it was a story that he told himself, but B, for him to go a letter up was a huge accomplishment. For me to go a letter down, then a letter up. It was almost not being acknowledged because it was expected of me to perform that way. So in his case, I think there was also probably some learning disabilities mm. that stood in his way for why he wasn't able to see the world the way that I did. And the other part is he had lived a completely different experience. Mm. He was one of the one of the kids who was dropped off at the orphanage on the footsteps. So you, I'm sure the two of you have Abandoned. exactly heard those stories where kids are dropped off at the footsteps in one of those boxes or a little cage. He was one of those kids. So who knows how that impacted him? He was literally, if you think about it, in a way born in an orphanage. Hmm. That's where he was raised from the first days of his life. So there's all these things that I think impacted his story. I think what makes me different, and people ask me this all the time, how were you able to do this? What is it that contributed to it? In complete honesty, I wish I knew. Hmm. And I think if anything, it's my ego that wants me to tell me that, okay, you took X, Y, and Z steps and here you are. But the reality of the matter is, yes, I can tell you the steps that I took when I became aware of the steps, but there were probably thousands of other steps that just happened yeah. as a matter of circumstance. You know, like I didn't know how I was going to steal food at the markets when I was a little kid. I just somehow started to figure out that, okay, I'm half the size of the person next to me. So if I squeeze in between the two people who are significantly bigger than I am, I might be able to reach my hand out, grab a loaf of bread or an apple or whatever it is, and then get get out. So there's just a lot of instinctu instinctual things that I think I had to do as a way to survive. Literally, that's what, what it was the first nine to 12 years. Mm. It was surviving. There was no thriving. It yeah. wasn't even a possibility. I think you, you spoke about resourcefulness. Mm -hmm. And then I, I'm trying to think about how to word this, but I wouldn't dare call that um, other other young man uh, have it, I wouldn't say he had a victim mentality mm -hmm. but it was like you you kind of had an opportunity to choose to go there and for him it wasn't a choice mm -hmm. in fact he was a victim by by just being by circumstance off. Yeah, yeah by circumstance mm -hmm. but I think 
I think on the flip side of that, it seems like you haven't really had, and maybe you've fluctuated back and forth, but it seems like you've chosen to say, I'm not going to settle for like a victim mentality or like a pity party or poor me. Like, okay, I'm here. What am I going to do now? Mm-hmm. What's the alternative, hmm. right? That's the question that I asked myself at that time is what's the alternative to the circumstances? I could either fall into it and like you said, become the victim of the circumstances, the things that were happening to me, or I could take a step back and, and move forward in the best ability that I can. The lying and all those things, they served me at the time, they helped me. I'll also tell you the backstory or the flip side of it all is that they became a habit because mm. I was doing that so often, even when I came to the States, that's what I relied on. I lied more times than I could remember because that was my backbone. That's what saved me from their early childhood beating or punishment. So the, a lot of things in life I'm realizing and going back to the early childhood upbringing, as difficult as it was in complete transparency with the two of you and anyone that's gonna be listening to this, I'm extremely grateful. Hmm. I'm extremely grateful all those things happened the way they did because they made me who I am. They gave me the resilience. They gave me a perspective on life that I don't think I could ever buy. They gave me a they gave me a way to see other people that I don't think I would be able to see had I not gone through those things. Hmm. I think there's a reason why most situations, whoever I connect with, in most times I'm able to see the pain beyond the surface. I'm really able to see that there's something more. And I think due to having a lived experience like I do, I'm able to connect with a lot of people like that. And I think there's a level of trust that someone like myself and someone who is either going through something right now or has gone through something that we just automatically develop. Mm. We don't even have to think about it. I'm sure you can relate. You know, when yeah, you go like through you, you're shared not strangers. trauma. Yeah, you're not strangers. Mm. And even though you might've met each other on the road yeah. 30 minutes ago, but yet you can strike a conversation, you can get deep into a topic and really get to know one another. And that's what, at this point, this is what it's all about for me. That's what drives me. Yeah. We're definitely going to get into that. I want to talk about how you're helping people, mm -hmm. what inspired you to do it. But I'd like to talk a little bit about um, your mom just a little bit more because um, your birth mom, because I think alcoholism and addiction affects so many families, breaks up so many families, takes people's lives, leaves people orphaned or, um, or motherless, fatherless. And, and it's a struggle. And I don't know if you know much of my story, but I've been to treatment mm -hmm. twice for addiction and, and it's tough what families go through and the alcoholism that your, your mother experienced and also for your sister, do you think a lot of that resentment, was it there for her during her childhood, your your sister? Was was your mom already mm -hmm. a functioning alcoholic and she had to go through that herself and then she was putting you through it as well? The story there, at least the story that I was told, is that my mom presumably was in two different relationships. So my sister has a different dad than I do. And the first dad, my sister's dad, had passed away due to suicide. Mm. He had locked himself in the car and let the exhaust go in it and essentially died. 
The second story is, and I don't know the full details besides what I've been told, and that's my dad. My dad, and we don't know whether the two of them were married or not, or what the backstory, or it could have been a one-night stand. But supposedly after my birth, he was arrested. He was arrested, and it was something along the lines of maybe a homicide or killing someone. So he was put to jail for a very long time. And I think it was after the first passing, that's when she started drinking as a way to cope with what had happened. So she was grieving, she was drinking, and then I come into her world. And then that situation happens to my dad. Slightly different set of circumstances, but it, it I bet it put her in a very difficult situation because now it's like, well, not only do I have two kids on my hand, but I also have to process the fact that the first dad had passed. This is the thing that happened to the second one. So once again, I'm on my own. So I really don't blame her at all. And I used to, trust me, I used to blame her for the times she would drink. I used to sit in front of her countless of times and I would ask her, please stop drinking. And she would tell me, this is the last one. I'll stop tomorrow. Tomorrow never came. Tomorrow turned into next month, next year, and years down the road. And that is when I started to get my first glimpse into the world that you truly can't change anyone. No matter what you say, no matter what you do, I think change starts internally. Mm. It starts with the possibility that the person has to develop on their own, that A, change is even possible and change is something that they want in their lives. So at the time, I think it was a way that she coped with her problems and grieved simultaneously. And uh, the full story behind it is the year after I was adopted, I had a, I guess you could say, misunderstanding with my adoptive dad. And that's, he came up to my room one of the days, and I, I used to pick up the landline and call Russia. This is 2004, 2005. <laughs> so could you, you can imagine how expensive the yeah. phone bill became every month. Yeah. And I would call sometimes once a week, sometimes twice a week. He came up to my room and he said, we need to look at other ways for you to be in touch with them. And I'm sure he proposed a, a variety of options. I misunderstood him completely. I thought he said, don't pick up the phone or don't blow up the bill. So for six years after that moment, I didn't make a single phone call. Six years, no phone call to anyone. Six years later, I'm sitting at a coffee shop with my friend. And what, what does that mean? You're 18 or 19 years old now? Yep, 18, 19 years old, freshman year of college. I'm sitting at a coffee shop with my friend and I'm sharing my story and what I wanted to do at the time. And she said, you need to put this in the book. You need to write this. You need to share this with other people because I think it could relate with, with many others. And so I said to myself, well, in order for that to happen, I have to be able to reconnect with my roots to even understand what had happened and why it happened the way that it did. So through a couple of my friends, I was able to get back in touch with my mom, with, with what I thought would be my mom and my sister and my mom had passed. Mm. My mom had passed in an apartment fire the year after I was adopted. And that was a, that was a hard moment and it, it still yeah. is a hard moment because there's so many things that I wish I could share with her. There is the opportunity for the final hug, the final goodbye kiss, all these things. It's, and I'll never get a chance to do that. And that's just the reality. And it's a, it's a hard reality to accept because Really, when I think about a lot of the history of my past, she's the only one who holds the keys. She knows more than my sister does. So she might know the full story. So there's so many questions that I wish I could ask. 
but unfortunately, I don't believe I'll be able to ever get an answer to. So my mom had passed and my sister was still alive. So I was able to kind of get in touch with her and start forming that relationship once again. But at that point, we were in a completely different phase of both of our lives. I was 18, 19 years old, starting to build my professional careers, starting to move past a lot of the circumstances that took place the first 12 years. And she was in a relatively similar place. Remind me, how old, how old are you now? 29. 29. Yeah. You've lived a lot of life. I have. A I've lot lived, of life. I've lived quite a bit of life. And as I was sharing with the two of you before, even having had the opportunity to travel, travel. these past seven months, yeah, seeing places like Ghana and Ecuador and Peru is, was an eye-opener. I yeah. didn't even know a life like that existed. Yeah, and I'd love to go into that. I'd love to go into overcoming odds. And, but I, I was just thinking mm -hmm. um, through processing grief and other things, um, have you ever done anything like write a letter to your mom or the things you wish you could have said? And, and what, what would be something you would say to her? Not necessarily ask her, but I mean, if you had something that, that you could, a message you could give, what would that be? It's a really good question. <clears throat> I have written letters, multiple, in fact, too many to count. Mm. And I think the thing, the biggest thing that I would tell her, in fact, it's pretty much how I started every single one of the letters is I forgive you. It's forgiveness. Mm. It's forgiving her for who she was. If it's forgiving her for her behaviors because I'm not here to, I'm not here to blame her. I'm not here to blame anyone. I'm not here to really judge anyone's choices. I'm realizing that at this point in my life that in my opinion, judgment really doesn't lead to anywhere. Mm. It doesn't serve me, it doesn't serve the other person. And I think in her case, it's a perfect example. Here was a person who had gone through a lot before I was alive and then had to go through probably twice as much after I was born. So I don't blame her for what she did. In fact, I think it, if it wasn't the way it was, I wouldn't be sitting here. And if she didn't give me birth, I wouldn't be sitting here. So there's there's a variety of things that I choose to be grateful for despite of the challenges. But I would say to answer your question directly, it's forgiveness. Mm. I think that you saying that, it sounds like the gratitude and also compassion yeah. led to forgiveness. And if you had to sum it up what what power or magic or miracle is in in forgiveness for some people it's really hard i've had moments it's hard yeah um even against childhood bullies and things like that that i had to forgive like <clears throat> decades later mm -hmm. you know and uh and thought i'd let it go and thought i'd let it go yeah and then it comes back up and but um for someone that's listening that maybe they need to i've heard some people say before i will never ever ever forgive this person for xyz mm -hmm. and it might not be anything if they really truly just looked at on black and white and compared mm -hmm. maybe their situation to yours mm -hmm. maybe it would be a whole lot easier to forgive that person but you found it in you to do that and what's that power that magic that that miracle it's interesting that you mentioned that because I was like that once upon a time. Mm. I thought 
I had the same exact thoughts. I will never be able to forgive the caregivers, my mom, and everyone else who was a part of my journey at the, at the beginning. And ultimately what I realized forgiveness gave to me was a peace of mind. It gave me an understanding or an acceptance of here are the things that happened and there's literally nothing that I could do about them. I've lived so much of my life trying to change my past only to realize that the past is the past. Hmm. There's nothing that I can do about it besides come to terms with it, figure out and learn what I had to learn or what I'm choosing to learn from those things and move forward. Going back to the earlier story we shared about the two the two kids in the orphanage, myself and the friend of mine, yes, it was hard. It was hard to see it. It was hard to be on the receiving end of it. But at the same time, the more that I look at all those things, once again, going back to the alternative, what's the alternative? Why look at life the other way? Why not look at life through a lens of optimism? And I think even in those moments of hardships, forgiveness helped me come to terms, but forgiveness also made me stronger. Hmm. It made me a lot stronger than I believed I was because through forgiveness, I was able to A, reaffirm to myself that I can forgive. And that's the most important part for me. I didn't believe for many years that I could forgive someone. How could you forgive someone? I don't know if you can relate when someone bullies you, not for a day, but for years. Yeah. And to the most extreme of circumstances, right? Puts him in the middle of the room, makes an example out of you. And then from there, not only do you have to live with it, but all the other kids have to live with that. Mm-hmm. And, and in then a position it keeps of power, and an adult to a child, all adult that stuff. Yeah. position of all power. The reasons. So then the you reasons. start to lose your confidence in future adults. Mm-hmm. I'm supposed Every to be time... safe here. I'm not exactly. safe. Every time you develop relationships, you start to second guess. Are they going to protect me or are they going to hurt me? So there's a variety of other things that took place from that as far as a series of events goes. But forgiveness for me was the biggest one. Once I gave myself permission to forgive, Mm. that was the most important step on my journey. Because no matter how much other people told me, you need to forgive them, you need to accept it for what it was, something didn't click. And that's going back to the change component. I think I had to accept it on my own terms first. Mm. Because no matter how much people wanted to tell me and possibly even be helpful in saying that the only way to move forward is you got to forgive. Well, A, it's simpler said than done. And B, they haven't really lived what I've lived through. So they don't really understand what are the components that I have to forgive to someone else. Is it solely the beating or is it the words that were said? Or was it the decision that I made? Because ultimately that was my decision. I was a nine-year-old kid who chose to give up my parents' rights, who chose to go into an orphanage. So there was a variety of factors that I had to go through. And luckily through my friends and another one of my friends who's a therapist, I've spoken to her for many, many hours. I found that thing. Now, is it possible that there's going to be other elements throughout my life where I haven't forgiven for that are going to reappear? Absolutely. And that's where I believe that there is no end to growth. There is no end to maturity. There is no end to curiosity about life. It's all just one journey with truly no end. Forgiveness, I think it's the same exact way. I'm sitting here today and I'm telling you I've forgiven them. And then next thing you know, as I walk out and someone says something that I haven't heard before, 
and it just happens to trigger a different element of my past and it takes me down the rabbit hole where I'm having to think about, okay, maybe I haven't forgiven this person. So there's there's a variety of opportunities to learn and improve and to forgive ultimately. Fightfortheforgotten.org. You can go check out Fight for the Forgotten, the foundation that I started. It is my passion project. It is something that I love so much because of the people we get to help. We get to help the pygmy tribe who adopted me in help themselves. We say opportunity is greater than charity. Charity can be great, but opportunity is just always better. That's why we've drilled something like 80 water wells already, providing over 30,000 people clean water. We've started sustainable farms, bought back over 3,000 acres of land for the people who originally owned it, put it in their name. We built 32 homes, and now we're about to start a health center, a school, and a marketplace. They're going to have a maternity ward, a pediatrics unit, and a dental suite. You can join the Fight for the Forgotten Fight Club at fightfortheforgotten.org. We would love, love, love to invite you on this journey to join this fight arm in arm with us. Our fight club, it's a monthly giving club. You can give $5 or more a month, and that empowers us to empower people. Thank you for being on this journey with us. I invite you to come along for the ride. It's been absolutely epic, putting love and compassion in action and fighting for people. Fightfortheforgotten.org. Join our fight club. Yeah. So for, uh, what I'm gathering is forgiveness is a choice, mm-hmm. but it's also a process. Yeah. Um, and I think, I think there is power in it. And, you know, there's that saying that unforgiveness is like drinking poison and hoping the other person dies, you know, yeah. like it's going to punish them, but it's, and you said you found strength and forgiveness. And I think that that shows me at least that it's like, Ooh, when I decide not to forgive, that's almost deciding or choosing like to let that weaken me instead of strengthen me. Um, mm-hmm in my life to where I can show up and be the best version of myself in that moment, being present, not, not worrying about the past or fearing the future, but just being here now. Look, a lot of people, when I shared this story, especially the decision I made as a nine-year-old kid, many of the people that are spoken to, they say, this was the bravest, the best decision I made. Mm. But for me, even though I did think of of it in those terms, I also thought it was a big mistake at Mm. one point. And talking about forgiveness, forgiving myself. I was going to ask you that. For that. Has that been the hardest? It was one of the hardest moments was forgiving myself for the decisions that I made from that point on has been the most challenging of it all. And I think what I've also learned throughout my journey is that there were so many times throughout my life where I didn't have the space to fully process who I was. I didn't have opportunities to look myself in the mirror or maybe I didn't create enough opportunities to look myself in the mirror and say, you made these choices, but I forgive myself. Yes, one might have been a mistake. And I I think that's the kind of dilemma of choices, right? Is we never know whether it's gonna be a right or wrong choice or however you wanna look at it, whether or not it's gonna lead you down a direction that you wanna go or a complete other path. All you can ever do, I believe, is just make a choice based on the best available information. And sometimes that information is incomplete. And that's what I think what I was working with as a nine-year-old kid, A, probably not having a full developed brain (laughs) to even understand how do you make a decision like this? So did I weigh out all my options? 
did I put myself in a window where I was able to say that, okay, if I go to an orphanage, I may never be able to see my mom or my sister as often as I wanted to. Did I see that? Probably not. It was a reality that I had to accept and, and ultimately learn from. And that's what happened. I realized after I went into the orphanage, then the few number of times I'll be able to see them because the visitation hours were only from X to Y and they couldn't come at any other time and I couldn't leave. The whole property was gated and that, and you were made an example of once again if you left. So there were just all these things that I learned after hmm. making that decision in my life and once again, forgiving myself and knowing that that was the best choice that I could make at the time. And even though it might've been a mistake or, or a decision that I chose to perceive as a mistake, it is what it is. There's nothing I can do about it anymore. What do you think are some of the best choices your adopted parents um, have made for you? Like some of the, the biggest impact from, I mean, obviously deciding to bring you here, mm -hmm. call you family, like, but, um, I mean, I wonder if that opportunity hadn't come, where would you, where would you be now or what would be going on? And, and what are you, I guess, grateful for, for, for them and in coming into your life? That's a good question. As far as the best choices, I think they've made first choosing to stick with me. Hmm. Like I said, I put them through a roller coaster and they have been there every step of the way and continue to. And that is the biggest thing that I'm learning from them as far as how I show up as a friend, how I show up as a son, how I show up as a business owner, all these roles and hats that I wear in this lifetime to other people is choosing to stick with people regardless of how difficult their journey gets. The other thing that I'm extremely grateful for them is they have, in looking at the two of them, they're probably the most caring people I've ever come across. Mm. My mom, by profession, she's a social worker. My dad is an engineer. So part of those two journeys, the social work component obviously involves dealing with people, learning how to communicate, learning how to show compassion and, and caring for others, even in situations, I bet, where you don't agree with a single word with how the other person chooses to perceive life or chooses to see life or, or do with their life. And my dad... I look at my dad in one of two ways, and he's very similar to his dad, my grandpa, and that is a man of very few words. And the reason why is because I think he really chooses carefully what he says and how he says it. So going back to gratitude, what am I grateful for when it comes to the two of them? It's their ability to communicate with others as well as themselves because through their journey, I was able to understand communication, which to me, I think is one of the biggest skills hmm. one can have in life. The ability to communicate your ideas, your thoughts, whatever it is that you wanna build, I picked up from them. I picked up compassion from them. I picked up what it's like to care for another person from them. And I'm sure that there are probably thousands of other things that I haven't fully processed, but I would say at the end of the day, all those times where I sat on the windowsill at the orphanage thinking about or wishing for a better set of parents or a better set of circumstances, they've delivered. Hmm. In fact, they've over-delivered. <laughs> they gave me more value than I could ever ask for in a lifetime.
They were that answered prayer. They were that answered prayer. So it's, you just, I, I don't know what I don't know. And I don't know what really worked at the time and what forces had to come together to make it all work, but it happened. And is it possible for everyone to be completely honest with you? I don't know. Maybe I was the lucky one that was able to get through whatever set of circumstances. But I think if anything, what I'm choosing to look at is <clears throat> there were times where I didn't have hope. I literally gave up hope. And I'll tell you a quick story. I was at the orphanage and it was a week or probably a couple months before my adoption was going to take place. And the adoption got delayed. It got delayed due to some sort of paperwork wasn't filed properly or someone wasn't paid off, who knows. And so the two months became half a year to a year. And I'll tell you in that moment, the certainty, the hope and everything was gone. There was nothing, there was barely anything that I could hang on to. The attitude around the orphanage changed because leading up to the adoption, everyone knew that I was about to leave. So everyone put me on the pedestal. People looked at me, people said, wow, look at that beautiful American smile. And they wanted me to leave, I think, with the best possible impression of the place that I was, I guess, raised in for the three years. And then once everything became a little bit more uncertain, everything changed. I was just like any other kid. No more comments about his smile. Look at him just like any other orphan. So it, it made it a lot more challenging for me to really survive and hang on to whatever I had to hang on to. So going back to my parents, they've given me everything. They've given me everything. I'm extremely grateful for them. And I think I don't even know if over a course of a lifetime, I'll truly be able to find the words to express to them the impact they've had on my life. Hmm. They've changed me. They, they've, literally, they've helped me become who I am. I am a better person because of them. That's incredible. <laughs> wow. Amy, see so you almost getting emotional over there. Yeah, well, your eyes too. It's beautiful. <laughs> yeah. It's beautiful. But um, yeah. I, on your website, one of your core tenets is about network, and you're never alone, mm -hmm. and never mm -hmm. feeling alone. And I don't really know how to ask this question exactly, but I think you'll get what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. So, if that's one of the core things that you want people to understand, you certainly had times where you felt very, very alone. Yeah. And I get that you don't want someone to feel that way, but people do. So you did you have a network? Did you uh, have moments where you didn't feel alone in those years? It's a good question. And probably from time to time I did, but I would say most of the situations during that time, I had to be that person for myself. And I think that's one of the hardest things that I had to do is I had to become that inspiration or whatever the role that was needed for myself. Did you believe in a higher power when you were sitting on the windowsill praying? You know, up until I was 10 years old, I used to believe in God. I used to believe that there was a God and part of it had to do with the fact that that's kind of how I was raised. So in a way, maybe the, that element was forced onto me. Mm -hmm. I, I don't think I was really given the option that said, believe in whatever you want. It's more so you have to believe in this. And at 10, when everything, or it seemed like everything was not going my way, I gave up that belief. You were getting beaten at that point, mm -hmm. right? Exactly. Like and so at that point, I just realized that the only thing I could believe in is me. Mm -hmm. So I, I made the conscious choice to believe in myself and that I have the willpower to change my own circumstances. 
But yet you still got on the windowsill and prayed. I did. And I don't know who I prayed to (laughs) or what I prayed. Just pray. I just remember praying for something, a better, better chance, better set of circumstances. So at the end of the day, I think the more that I think about that, it's myself. I was the only person I could rely on, really. And I will also say this, at the orphanage, there was one caregiver that I felt she had my back in most situations. So she also helped me. Now, we never had a sit down where I was able to process my feelings or anything like that. And the social worker that we had, I certainly wasn't going to go to her and tell her what was happening and how, how I was feeling. So a lot of it I had to process poetry. Poetry was another thing that helped me now that I think about it. In fact, that was the other thing that I used to do when I wasn't praying on the windowsill. I would write poems with the available light coming from the window and just process my thoughts about my mom, what it was like to, what it would be like to live in a home. And I remember a couple times actually waking up in the morning and going to get a caregiver and giving her one of the poems and they actually framed a couple of them around the orphanage. They put them in like the main halls. And so it's... Do you happen to remember any, like a, a single I wish, line or anything? I, I wish I could tell you a single yeah. line. I've actually been in in a long search for those things. I've connected with everyone I could from the orphanage. Is it still around, that orphanage? It is. Wow. The orphanage is still around. And last I heard, the director, I believe she was arrested mm. uh, for some sort of fraudulent activities. Wow. So I, I, I wish the, the poems were still around because that would be something to have as a piece of memory. But to answer your question directly, that was the that was the only thing I could rely on. The mm-hmm. the poems to help me process, to help me stay optimistic about my own life and then myself, my own abilities. There was there was nothing else. There was no one else. My sister couldn't help me get out of the circumstances, my mom. And I I remember even having that thought, what if I were to go to them and say, take me back? What would happen? And in fact, I think one time I did try that with my mom. I asked her if she could take me back. And she said, I I will try. But unfortunately, at this point, there's nothing I could do. Mm. I was a ward of the state. And the process for her to prove to the state that she is a capable adult was not going to take 24 hours. It's a lengthy process that you have to show them probably a proof of income. She wasn't working at the time. So there are just a variety of factors or odds she had to overcome on her own to even become a parent once again. And going back to wishing to have that final hug or even ask her anything, that is a thing that I would love to ask her again. And that is, what was that like? What was that like for you as a mom to know that your son is in an orphanage and you may not get a chance to parent him for the rest of your life? And I'll never get that chance. So, But I think... To transition a little bit into Mm -hmm. what you're doing now, I mean, I think um, your parents here and her and your legacy that you're leaving Mm -hmm. by helping people, bettering their situation when they're going through Mm -hmm. something similar to what you did. Where was the inspiration of, uh, and when when did you start that overcoming odds? Mm-hmm. What's the website again so people dot can pull today. it up? Dot today. Odds. Dot today. Odds. Dot today. That's mm-hmm. what I thought. And so people can go check that out. I encourage them to and see mm-hmm. how they can support you and the mission, the vision, the team, and people that have a story very similar to this. Mm-hmm. Um, but how old were you? When did you know you were going to do this? 
and what do you guys do? I mean, we're going to get all into mm. it. I was 24 years old. I was I got accepted into a business accelerator program in Newark, Delaware. If you ask where is that, I couldn't even tell you because that's how I felt at the time. Yeah, I've been there, wrestled so, there once. <laughs> I, I went there and uh, I was I got accepted into that program for a completely different business concept. And I remember on the drive there, or maybe even a, a few days leading up to the program starting, I started to realize that something wasn't right, th that I felt that there was a greater purpose within me, there was a greater purpose within my story other than this business that I was about to create. And so I started to really wrestle with this concept of what is my purpose? What is the meaning of it all? Why was I the one that was meant to experience X, Y, and Z? And that is the biggest question that I was stuck on for many, many years. Why me? Why was I the one that was meant to experience the hardship, the challenges, the losses in my lives? And what I started to realize within that moment was the answer was always in front of me. And it was, why not you? Why mm. weren't you the one that was meant to go through it all? And that's where I think the original idea came about <clears throat> Uh, as far as creating this platform for other people who might have felt what I was feeling and know that there is another way to look at their circumstances. In fact, I remember vividly sitting at a coffee shop in, at this program in Newark and thinking of different names. And I had names like courageous or curious and overcoming, and nothing was just coming to mind. No single word like overcome, which is a genius name that could, there was nothing that was coming. And then I, I created two sets, actually. On one side, it was overcoming, and then on the other side, it was odds. And then I looked at the two, and I was like, that's it. That's what my life has been, overcoming a series of odds within my own life or hardships or finding another way, redefining relationships with some of these more complex topics like depression, anxiety, stress. And so I started to realize in that moment how much of overcoming as a process is not about eliminating or mastering or conquering, but simply developing a different relationship, developing a different narrative with the topic at hand. Because yeah. I'm a huge believer, and I don't know if the two of you subscribe to this theory at all, but I don't believe you could fully eliminate anxiety. I don't believe you could fully eliminate depression or stress out of your life. If anything, it, just, it comes and goes. And I and and I think it's it's a it's a little indicator, you mm -hmm. know, it's a little check checkpoint. Yeah. Whenever th it helps you know when things are coming up that you need to deal with this, or are you going to avoid it? Or are you going to deal with it? Or uh, how are you going to handle it? How are you going to process it? Are you going to breathe through it, or is it going to yes. throw you off completely? I think it's part so, two, just being a human. Yeah, you know? yeah, <laughs> the whole yeah. thing. It's needed, the whole experience. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I started to realize in that moment was that really it was more of a process. It was not an outcome. Mm. It was a process of transformation that one goes through. And in that moment, the, the next step I remember taking was going immediately to the experience that I could relate to the most. And that's the person who was adopted internationally. So then I literally found, I think it was 20 to 50, maybe even 100 different Facebook groups catered towards adoptees who came here from Ukraine, Russia, China, Korea, whatever the place was. And I would message each person individually. And I would say, here's what I'm starting. And at the time it was just my story. And then at the end of it, I just had a very simple click to act or, or a button that says, share your story. And the whole point of that was to create a platform where one can go to 
if you were, let's say, a future adoptive parent, and you can get all sides of an experience. Not only the success stories, but also the stories that didn't work out and everything in between. And I reached out to a bunch of people and within probably one to two days, hundreds of people, literally hundreds of people started submitting stories. And then in that moment, I just realized that A, this is needed. It's needed. And B, it matters. It matters and probably there are other groups that need it. So I started to reach out to adoptive parents, foster parents, and I said, can you relate? And if so, what is your story? And then it just grew. There were literally hundreds of stories and it was difficult to do this for a variety of reasons. First, starting any venture with no budget or anything, it's a crazy idea. The second part was I didn't know how to deal with negative feedback when it comes. And I think everyone, everyone who is doing some sort of project that involves a variety of other people probably has received an element like that. And for me, the first time I remember receiving, it was a pretty long comment. It was actually a private message from a person about someone else's successful experience of going through adoption. And they said, how could you post this on your website? I had, a, I had a really bad one. I just don't understand how you can promote adoption, all these other things. And in that moment, I started to realize that I have an opportunity here. I have an opportunity here to not get back at the person with negative feedback, but more so ask them, why did they feel this way? So I started to dig deeper. And I kid you not, 10 to 12 comments in, the person says, I'm sorry. Mm. And I got their full story. I understood why they felt that way. They didn't have the best of experiences. Their adoption story did not work out like mine did. They didn't have a group of parents who cared for them in the way that they wanted to. So all these realizations, simply through asking the question of, tell me more, or why? Why do you feel this way? So that's where I first really begin to believe that, I genuinely believe everyone has a voice. I genuinely believe that everyone is living a story the challenge, I think, becomes when it comes to living one's story in full transparency, it's hard. It's hard to live a story where the life circumstances may not be in full alignment with it. So, for example, when I was first starting this four to five years ago, one of the obvious challenges was how are you going to make money doing this? So that was a question I had on my own. Then there were questions outside of me, people who were closest to me, people who had no idea who I was. The same exact question, is this even possible? Can you even create a business out of this? Um, if anything, maybe you should go find a job. That was one of the most common things that I heard in starting a lot of this. But I just continue to believe. I continue to believe that at some point, it's gonna work out. At some point, I'm going to find the right people or certain things are gonna to come together where it's gonna click. And that was the going back to believing in myself. That was the only thing I could do. I believed in myself. I believed in the fact that at one point in my life, I'll be able to communicate, which I believe is the craziest and the hardest question to answer. And that's, what's your purpose? Mm. I think it's the wildest question you could ask of anyone. Because mm. at the end of the day, do we truly know and especially, do we truly know in a sentence? <clears throat> well, yeah, uh, not, you can't, it's hard to sum it up in a sentence. 
Um, I've tried. I've tried in certain ways to keep it simple, but mine's mine's to fight for people. It's to pursue my purpose with passion, which is mm -hmm. to put love and compassion in action. And to really, uh, at one point in my life, I was just fighting against people, but really I was supposed to be fighting for mm -hmm. people. And how can I do that? And through the nonprofit, we try to overcome oppression through mm -hmm. overwhelming opportunity. So we say opportunity is greater than charity. Charity can be great, but opportunity, creating opportunities, not just giving handouts, but like yes. partnering with the people to say, what do you really need? Mm -hmm. And how do we create an opportunity for you to get that to where yeah. it's not being done for you, but you get to do it for yourself. And we'll give you love and support and help and all that stuff, but help you get on your own two feet. Cause that's what everybody wants. Everyone wants to be able to um, be empowered and be and, and grab hold of an opportunity and know that they're an opportunity to have dignity, right? And so I not that that wasn't one sentence. Um, <laughs> First case in <laughs> point, case in point, right? right? <laughs> case in point. But with with you, I thought it was interesting to ask. You know, how do you think people do start that discovery purpose or discovery process mm -hmm. to find purpose? And when you were sharing about the pieces of paper or, or like in writing it down and I can relate to that and, mm -hmm. and go back to me starting fight for the forgotten and even finding the name. I was, they said they were forgotten. I was a fighter. And then it, it kind of all just came together. I went through a thousand different names before that. And I was like, I don't know if this one's a good one or not. And then it really resonated and um, with me and with others and to see support happen and, and it starting to come together, I was like, whoa. And just, you know, drawing the logo and, and, and creating a mission statement and a, in core values and, and seeing a community, uh, come together. You know, we've had well over 10,000 donors. I think we've had 10,000 donors in a year that we're all from all 50 countries and six or all 50 States and 60 mm -hmm. different countries. And to see that kind of thing happen, it's like, whoa, like, um, this is so much bigger than me, mm -hmm. um, because it's needed. And so for you, that process of you, you're at this jumping off point or, or am I choosing to go down this path of business from this business accelerator, mm -hmm. or am I going to sit at the coffee shop and dream mm -hmm. and discover my purpose and kind of stoke that here's an ember. This is my story but how do I take care of this ember to not let the fire go out? And how can I, how can I take care of this and see if it will grow into something? Mm -hmm. You went through that. For me, I think when I think about purpose, I think about a couple of things. First is I'm a huge believer that how I was able to do it was first, I defined a purpose and then over time I refined that mm. purpose. <laughs> and I realized I like that. that purpose can be found in anything and anywhere. And one thing that I realized to travel actually is that in my opinion, I believe that there's a tendency in US based on my own lived experience to find this grand sense of purpose, which creates a lot of pressure mm. on any given individual to become the next Barack Obama, MLK, Gandhi, whoever. And it's not enough to just hold the door. It's not enough to go and pick up trash on the highway. And I realized through travel, how many people spent their lives, their days, simply waking up and saying, I'm going to show up as X, Y, and Z, and that's enough. For me, that was a big realization because I realized that throughout my whole journey, I struggled with that. 
when I was first starting a lot of this, I would share the idea of overcoming odds with people at the beginning. And most times I would get the comment of, you got to think bigger. It's got to be bigger than this. And mm -hmm. I would tell them, what do you mean? This is already huge. I don't even know how to make any of this happen or who do I talk to to make these things happen? So as much value as there was in their feedback, I think it also created an unnecessary amount of pressure. So I, I think, think I think anxiety and depression can come from that question of absolutely what what is my purpose and because I've had people reach out and ask that kind of thing and how do you find it and this and that and you want to encourage them too but also how do how do, how can you help that person take the pressure off to where it's like they're not in a downward spiral saying I yeah. don't know my purpose and I don't have a purpose and what am I here for and it's like man just just breathe be yeah. grateful for the breath in your yeah. lungs be be grateful for that beating heart in your chest and it's going to come i think a lot of it also goes to and i i think the two of you might have experienced this as well but th even think about the term human being mm -hmm. right in the united states my opinion of it it's human doing mm -hmm. it's forget the being part you have to do in order to be yeah and that to me it seems a little bit counterintuitive to what it actually means to be a human being when I was in Ghana, I'll tell you this, it was the first time where I felt like a human being. I was mm. able to just be. We woke up every single morning and the person that I was staying with, he told me every single day that today is gonna be an experience. <laughs> and I kid you not how much I look forward to hearing those words every single morning because it was an experience. Getting in a tro-tro every single, every single day and then driving however many miles along roads that and would for just- for people to know what's a trotro. I couldn't even describe to you what it was. Trotro is essentially this minivan that drives along the street. It's a form of public transport that they take there, but it's it's a cheaper um, point of transport, minivan, and essentially you just get yeah. in. Kind of like a taxi, like, but- yeah, 12 but to 15 bus, people. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it was interesting. It was mm -hmm. interesting for A, because I was the only Caucasian on the bus. So yep. my friend actually told me a they funny loved story. Your hair. <laughs> my friend actually told me a funny story. He said, most times people probably thought that A, he's either too broke to afford an Uber or he just wants to experience the culture. And that's where I was. I wanted to experience mm -hmm. it. So going back to the whole concept of purpose, Africa was the first time I really felt that. Mm. People truly were being, people, made time for their family, their friends at the end of every day. Yep. There was no exception. There was no, not even a thought that, okay, I'm gonna go see them in July or I'm gonna go see them in August. It's, I'm gonna make a commitment to myself to see them today. I'm gonna do what's important, what I believe is important every given day. And that was a huge realization. I didn't experience this here. I felt that here, in fact, when I came back and the reason why I chose to go back and stay with or visit my parents they were the first people that I saw is because I had had a realization when I was traveling. I was in a hostel in Athens, in Greece. And one of the people had asked me, he said, how often do you see your parents? I said, once or twice a year. And then he said, so in 10 years, you see them 10 to 20 times. Hmm. And he just clicked. Like, you're right. I still remember them as their mid fifties and they're not. So it's it's just, it's fascinating to me how many times due to a lack of awareness or a completely different lifestyle, I took a lot of these things for granted. So my, my biggest thing that I think about and kind of relating back to a mission and everything is the fear that I have at this point 
is having a regret of what I wish I could have done or could have become or could have been to someone. I have a regret of or a fear of having a regret of not being able to live your dream because I think this is a crazy miracle. I mean, really think about it. You have one chance to experience life in this form. Whatever your views are of afterlife, whether you come back as a squirrel or this table or <laughs> this water bottle, you're going to have a different experience probably. And to me, it's just, um, I can't even put it into words. It's such an opportunity to be able to just live out that dream in this form to help other people do the same exact thing. So at, at this point, that's really what it's, it's all about for me. There, I have no intention to become multi-billionaire, things like that. Like to be completely honest with you, money is a resource and I understand that you need to have money to be able to create some of these things, but it doesn't drive me. For me, what drives me is the ability to care for another human being. Like I genuinely give fill in the blank. I, I really care about the other person sitting. Like I really want to show up for that person. And I think a lot of it has to yeah. do with the fact that I didn't have that as a kid. Yeah, I, I love that, man. One of the, I mean, we can relate on Africa. I think that's where I discovered my purpose. Yeah. And people, I've said it on here before, but they would say, you you Americans, you Westerners, you guys all have the watches. Yeah. But us, us we Africans, have we have the time. And so I'm like, whoa, yeah, that's right. And whenever I wasn't on my phone, my, my, my smartphone was just a camera that I'd use occasionally. Most of the time, it wasn't a camera, it was a mirror for mm -hmm. for the kids in the village like see themselves for the very first time um and you know just being able to disconnect from the hustle and the bustle and the what am i doing next and um or even for me like disconnect from the identity that had been put on me and that i put on myself mm -hmm. oh he's a fighter oh he's this or that whatever um and he's been on tv whatever that is and it's like there they didn't know that Mm -hmm. And they didn't really care about that. Yeah. And so I was just me. I was just Justin or they named me, uh, my name was Efe Osa Mabuti Mangbo. And so, mm -hmm. um, you know, I was Efe or Mangbo. And it was just like, whoa, like these people care about. I was going to ask you this about Ghana. Did you notice that at least in Congo, there was uh, in the village, there was the only time you went into the hut was to sleep. Mm -hmm. uh, or rest because it was only about four or five foot tall and only maybe eight feet long mm -hmm. or something. And so you're only there to rest. So you were always with people, always with people. But whenever I was outside of the forest and, and kind of recharging or um, gearing back up to go back in the forest, getting more well drilling equipment, whatever, it was like in the culture, it was just always always an open door policy. Yeah. Meaning friends, family, whatever mm -hmm. it was, they were coming over and you never knew when, um, yeah. it wasn't a phone call first. Um, and it wasn't imposing. It wasn't a burden. Mm -hmm. It was like, it was a joy that like someone was just showing up and you, it was a surprise. I say, like, Whoa, I get to see you today, you know? And they're like, I'm just coming to check on you. Mm -hmm. And then a friend gra comes and grabs you. Let's go over here. You know? And there's times it was different because of the culture, you know, like I was like, oh man, I'm tired. I, th I think I might want to rest, you know, and maybe I didn't know how to speak up and say, I, have, I, should, I should probably rest. <laughs> um, but I learned, but it was just, it was so different that you can learn like these people value 
each other mm -hmm. in such a different way, such a different depth that it's not about the next social media post or how much money they have or them becoming a celebrity. It was just like, you know, like this person, I love their heart. Yeah. Love who they are. Ghana was an interesting place for me because the first thing that I realized as soon as I got off the plane was it was the first place where I felt like a minority. Hmm. I've, never felt, I've never felt like a minority in my life besides when I came to Accra. I landed at the airport and I was the only white person. So it was a bit of a culture shock. But at the same time, I started to look at it through the lens of as challenging as this is, this is also an opportunity. This is an opportunity for me to figure out what does belonging really mean? I think there's a lot to be said when you walk into a room and you see people of similar skin tone. It's one of those things where it's almost simult it just it just happens. Like you you have this feeling it's like, oh I belong. I don't even have to think about it. When I landed, I really had to think about how am I going to belong? Because I was different. Did I get the stare left and right? Absolutely. And for some people I've also realized that I was probably the first white person they've ever seen when I walked those streets. So I remember when I landed, that was the first realization. But the other thing that I'll mention to you, kind of going back to your point, is every single person I met was the kindest person that I've ever seen in my life. Now, did it have to do something with the fact that I chose to greet every single stranger? Literally, I was averaging two to 300. Good morning, good afternoon. Thank you, good good evening, all these things to every single person, just as a way to help me assimilate into that culture. Or were they truly that genuine? And I think it was probably a combination of the two, but the same exact thing. You could walk into almost anyone's house, they're having dinner, you could probably sit there and have, their, have dinner with them. It was fascinating. It was fascinating going back to Europeans have the watches and in Africa they had the time. I genuinely believe in that. That's what my experience proved to me is that I think they really understand how it is that they spend the time with who they spend the time and what they do with that time. Anything that they wanted to do in the day, I bet if you were to ask them at the end of the day for most of them, did you feel like you accomplished or was it time well spent? Probably most of them would say yes. And most of them don't have what we have. Mm -hmm. They don't have a phone. They don't have clean water. They don't have electricity oftentimes. I remember the first time my friend was at work and we had a rolling blackout. I was on the computer, you know, getting all worked up about how am I going to deal with this? I have six more meetings to get through all through Zoom. And that's the only way I can connect. And then I just had to let go. I was like, you know what? It is what it is. Can't change the circumstances. I wish I can go out there and solve the whole power and electricity problem, but I don't have the ability to do so right now. So it just, it made me also realize how much of my life I spent seeking control over my circumstances. Having all of these things around me meet a set of expectations that I had created, only to realize that at the end of the day, what can I really control? If anything, maybe myself and how I react, but even that's not true 99% of the time. Are there times when I react in anger? Absolutely. You can ask any of the people that I've been in a relationship with. So there's all these situations where I feel that that culture has really made me realize what it's like to be a human being. Mm. And it's all these things in between. You don't have clean water, you make it work. First time I had to do laundry, 
I went out in the neighborhood and kid you not, two or three people came by and they said, can we do your laundry for you? And I was like, no, I think part of it had to do with the fact that they, they didn't know I could do laundry. And, you know, I lived in the orphanage. I knew how to scrub and all mm -hmm. of it. So I just pulled up a bucket, sat next to them, started doing laundry. And my friend comes out and he's like, I just want to see if you know how to do this. He stands there five or 10 seconds. He's like, okay, you got this. So he just goes back. So it, it was a, it was such an experience where I think even doing that connected me to a lot of the neighbors because the neighbors were able to see, okay, here's a person who looks different than us, but yet he can still take care of himself. He knows how to live our life. So going back to some of the points that we made throughout all this, and that's what makes me resilient, what gives me the ability to fit into a lot of the cultures. A, I think it's the understanding and mutual respect I have for other people. And B, I just, I, I look at all these challenges as opportunities, mm. a way to learn because what's the alternative? Why not? And I think that's the choice that, in my opinion, I used to forget from time to time is that I had a choice in how I view my circumstances. I gave away my power so many times to the events, to the people, to all these things, and then only to realize that I always have that choice. Mm. I can always make a different choice. I like that with every challenge is an opportunity or an open door. And yeah. If it's not a, a seemingly open door, you know, you can, yeah. there might be a window you can open and, and find a way through it or over it. And and you can reframe it into yeah, an open door. Reframe it. Yes. I like that. Reframe it to an open door. I have a question yeah. that we didn't get to. Please. Um, you, I know that like for you, you learned quickly that if you lied, that meant more survival for you mm -hmm. in the orphanage. And then you came to the U.S. and you still, you know, probably leaned a lot on that and saying what you needed to say to survive. But I wondered when that shifted for you and you were able to let go of lying and move into a more truthful and honest way of being with others. I think it started with when I became more honest with myself. There was a moment, I don't remember, it was my first or second year after being adopted. And I know one of my really good friends who would be listening to this, so he'll be able to tell exactly how it, how it took place. But uh, we were on his floor, on the third floor at his house, and I took a 20 from him. And he had recognized that a 20 was missing, so he said, where's my 20, where's my 20? So I said, oh, it must have been your brother. And I had the 20 in my pocket. So I run down to his brother's How, room. how old are you again? I was probably 13, 13 or 14. Okay. I put the 20 in his book, in one of his brother's books. And then I, as soon as he comes down, I'm like, oh, I found it. Here it is. Told you it was here. And he's like, uh, sure. His brother wasn't even in the house to, yeah. make, to make this happen. So go. I think for me, it really shifted when I became more honest with myself and my own truth. And that was a journey that took many years to come to terms with the fact that I didn't really have to lie to protect myself anymore. Who was, I, who was I protecting myself from? Ultimately, I started to realize once I, especially once I got to the States, I was protecting myself from myself, period. The danger was not the same, not even close to what I experienced in Russia. I wasn't living at the orphanage anymore. No one was beating me. My dad was driving a uh, BMW, which to me was just like, whole other world. I was like, wow, I didn't even know cars like this existed. It's like literally the future right in front of you. <laughs> and yet it's probably an everyday car for most people. So I just realized a lot of these things were really just me. 
I was the biggest obstacle within my own journey. Hmm. I chose to lie to myself to protect myself and it served. It served a purpose once upon a mm -hmm. time. But then there became a point where I realized that in my opinion, there's really no way to build a solid relationship based on lying. I had to get to terms with the things that happened. I had to become more honest with my own life and the things that were happening within my life. And then that opened doors to create relationships that one of them is 17 years. 17 years we've been friends. Hmm. I think a lot of people don't even ever get to that realization yeah. or understanding. And a lot of people, I feel like, don't even have an opportunity to experience a friendship of that length. Well, I think also experience that kind of authentic honesty with themselves. Mm -hmm. yeah. Because I know that until basically recently. Well, we both had to do it. 220 yeah. mm -hmm. days ago. Um, <clears throat> I, you know, I wasn't being truly honest with myself about my addiction, because mm -hmm. maybe it was serving me in some way of like numbing or not being able to look at certain aspects of my life or, um, or my addict brain was saying, this is important for survival. It's more important than food or water at times. Yeah. And so I can't be honest with myself about the other things that this is bringing into my life. But when I got radically honest with me and others, um, that, that really started to to free me of that, to where I have to be. And mm -hmm. I'm, I'm actually really grateful that I've gone through addiction because now it's made me come to a point where I have to be honest with myself mm -hmm. uh, more times than not, like almost at all times. Um, but also think about how many times, and I don't want to speak for everyone, but simply for myself, how many times in my life where I would tell myself one story or I'd justify certain things or convince myself of whatever, only to hold myself back. Hmm. And I would even make the argument that we probably all do that on a daily basis mm -hmm. from time to time, right? I'm not Bigger good enough. Yeah. I'm not deserving of this. I can't do that. When the reality of the matter is you probably can do that. I look at whenever someone tells me you can't do something in life in one of two ways. A, it's either a fear of theirs that they're choosing to project onto me. So I just have to be, happen to be an outlet. Or B, it's something that they might have tried but haven't been able to achieve. So it's really, it's it's not a reflection of what I'm truly capable of. It's more so a reflection of them and their own beliefs. So going back to the lies and transparency and honesty, I think a lot of us do that. I think ultimately, what is the biggest obstacle or challenge of this life? I would argue that it's ourselves. I would argue that it's really not the circumstances Although I'm sure the circumstances contribute to it all, but I think the biggest obstacle is you. Mm. Yeah, that's so true. And I, I definitely want to honor you and your time and your story mm -hmm. and your organization. So what do you guys do? How do you do it? Because the reason I ask is mm -hmm. I have <clears throat> limited experience, but I've worked alongside with at least in Oklahoma, DHS Department of Human Services, help take care of a million people, um, the elderly, um, 
the disabled and then the foster care system. Mm -hmm. And I've gotten to see that I've gotten to see frontline workers. I've been able to go into the homes, the hospitals, um, speak to all 6,000 employees, um, there. And also down here, been in a few of the young boys homes and playing football with them, speaking to them, loving on them, just, just having a lot of fun. Um, but I think people that aren't, I, th I think they're so disconnected because mm -hmm. uh, they haven't gone through it. Um, they haven't been a foster family. They haven't been a frontlines worker. They haven't been a child that has experienced this. And so how are y'all helping? Because I think, I think there's so many ways that it can be done wrong. Mm -hmm. And maybe you've experienced, I mean, you have experienced mm -hmm. that. Uh, and then what's the best way to do it or best practices um, to help someone if they're trying to make that decision to become a foster parent or an adoptive parent, mm -hmm. or it basically, this is just for you to just take it, take it and go with it. For me, I think it all starts with a story. Uh, ever since I had this realization that much of my life and the survival through that life boiled down to the story and how I choose to view the story that created for myself and the story that I chose to share with other people, that's where everything changed. So what do we do? We help people create a different narrative. Hmm. How do we do it? We put people in opportunities, whether it's through podcasts, through in-person events, through weekly calls where people can explore a topic at hand. So whether that's fears, whether it's purpose, whether it's transitions, whether it's adversity, and through a conversation, usually a conversation amongst multiple people, able to shift their own perspective put them an opportunity or a lens where they could look at their own life and say, I never thought about it that way. Maybe it could be different. I think curiosity plays a tremendous role in helping one overcome or work through adversity based on my own personal experience. And the reason why is because I believe curiosity creates what I call possibility-based thinking rather than singular mm -hmm. thinking. I don't know if the two of you can relate, but you know, whenever you have a challenge, it's very much like, okay, this has to be the solution. It has to be the way. What I realized was that through curiosity, curiosity expands the number of possibilities available. One of the greatest lines that I heard from a book that I just listened to called The Psychology of Money, he describes, he says, the greatest currency in today's day and age is more control over your time and more control over your options. And I think having the curiosity or approaching a lot of these adverse circumstances through a curious mind, it expands the number of possibilities available. So when it comes to fears, I had a fear of travel when I first started this journey seven months or nine, 10 months ago. A lot of those fears had to do with lack of money, lack of time, who's gonna take care of my dog, who's gonna do X, Y, and Z. And I realized that by shining a light on each one of those fears individually, each one of those problems had a solution to it. Before I even finished a sentence about the dog, my mom's like, here, <laughs> we'll help. So there's just a lot of opportunities to create solutions. And I think that's ultimately what we try and do is we try to create these opportunities for people to create a different narrative, regardless of how difficult it has been. Now, what I've also realized throughout this journey is that it's a harder concept to grasp right? In your case, you build wells, you deliver waters. In, in someone else's case, they build chairs, they provide tables. So you, you can tangibly see the end result. In our case, it's a process. 
It's a process that you get to take yourself on and saying, here's the challenge. The challenge is that I'm having a difficult relationship with my parent. And the journey that I'm going to put myself on is how am I going to reframe the story that I'm telling myself about the relationship I have with my parent to hopefully result in a place where I have a relationship with my parent. Hmm. I can't put a time frame on that. And I'm not going to tell you that guaranteed results in 30 days or 60 or 90 mm -hmm. days is gonna work. Trust me, I've believed, I've tried those things. It's not as simple as that. For some people, it takes a year. For some people, it might take a whole lifetime to figure this out. But I think focusing on the story is is the old is the first step of it all. At yeah, least that's if, how I understand if, it. If an adoptive, uh, how a, a child thinks, oh, they didn't really want me anyways. Exactly. I mean, that's something big to unpack. Yeah. And they do have to go right back to that story, the root of the story. What's causing that? Yeah. yeah. Who who was the first person that actually instilled that thought? Was it them or someone else that said they didn't want? Was it the system? So there's just mm -hmm. a variety of things that influence it. So what I try to do through a or lot of this no work- did no one say it and it was just your perception? Exactly, mm. exactly. So that's what we're trying to do is just create these different opportunities to shine a light on them individually and help people unpack that story and create a different one. What's been a, I love that. And what's been one of your favorite moments or stories that have come out of this? Favorite moments, I would say, and th this is, uh, I guess you could say a transformation I was able to witness. So we host a call, or we've been hosting a call every Saturday called Courageous Conversations. Thanks. And hey, I, that was on the sheet of paper. Yeah. That, uh, one of the first things you might've gone with, with overcoming <laughs> odds, like Courageous was on there. Courageous I, Conversations, I love it. I remember we started this two, maybe three years ago. And one of the things that I've been able to witness through it is a transformation of actually one particular individual. I remember she was a part of it and she came in and she didn't have maybe the confidence to share some of the things about her freely. And then over time developed enough comfort around the group to really shine and to really thrive in it and actually act upon the dreams that she had put on the back burner. If you had to say what her age was about that time. Mid twenties. Okay. Mid-20s, and I, I realized in that moment how powerful a space like that could really be where you gather with a group of people who have a common goal, and that's to be able to transform their life or change their life through their stories. And then ultimately through the fact that there are multiple perspectives around them, shift their own perspective. It, I think it's one of the more powerful things that I've ever experienced in my life being able to sit in the same room with people who have different experiences, different education, different backgrounds, and then think to myself, either me too, or I never thought about it this way. You're right, my relationship could be different, or I mean, I, I don't have to be angry. Maybe I could forgive. And so I, I think that people in general are probably one of the biggest healing sources for anyone. Because mm. in a way, I look at all of us as mirrors. You're a mirror mm. to myself, you're a mirror to myself. You're able to help me see my blind spots, things that I'm not aware of and may never become aware of unless I choose to get curious and look at what, or hear and listen to what you're saying and think to myself, maybe he's right. Maybe I can go down that path because you've been able to. So in a way you're serving as inspiration to me for what you've done with your life and I might be able to do the same thing vice versa. 
You are. And then who knows what's possible, yeah. right? Then there's a whole other world of possibilities that we may not even be able to dream of just yet. Hmm. I really love that. And I think it, what you're doing goes back to a point that I learned during my time at, at treatment. And I used to be so ashamed to even say that, but yeah. after the second time, it's like, Ooh, this thing worked or it's, it's so good. And, um, they talk about all the different modalities for healing, but that there's nothing more powerful. There's nothing that's been more successful, at least for alcoholics and addicts as not just group therapy, but support groups coming yes. together, sharing your story. Yes. Having an intention. Yes. Having a topic. Yes. Having certain things like that, that guide it. But they, they, there's literally a book that's written by one of the most prolific guys to ever study and run one of the top addiction, um, centers in, in the world of all times. And he said, nothing has helped the addicts and alcoholics, um, like support groups. Mm. where they can come and share their common thing. He goes, and, and I wish the degree, I wish the um, all the training and all the time serving. Um, but he, go, he goes, if you want to doubt these groups, these support groups, and rather you'd send them here to where we, we have failed, we have, the system has failed, the process, the medical community has, has honestly failed. He goes, stand on the front lines and see the despairing mothers or yeah. wives or children and all this stuff. And then go to one of these support groups and see how they're actually finding healing mm -hmm. and not necessarily a cure, but, but healing where the power of a community. Um, yeah. And so that's what you're doing. You're providing an opportunity for people to come share their stories, grow, mm -hmm. be seen, mm -hmm. be heard, mm -hmm. um, to explore and be curious mm -hmm. and then to almost declare or, or not necessarily declare, but say, I'm going to try. I'm going to be courageous yeah. in this conversation so that I can go do it after this conversation. Yeah. And I think one other thing that I'll mention quickly in regards yeah. to your be seen, be heard is be appreciated. Mm. That is a big thing for me at this point in my life. I just realized how many times throughout my own life I felt unappreciated, how, how many other people do. Uh, I had a moment when I was graduating from high school. I remember talking to one of my teachers and she had asked me what appeared to be a very simple question. She, she said, who helped you get here? And I just sat there puzzled. You know, I, I think it was this person. It might have been that one. And the f the first real person came up was my sixth grade teacher, Rick Hall. Sixth grade, he taught me how to speak English. Mm. He sat with me before and after class. Wow. And if it wasn't for him, I truly would not be here. And I kid you not, I went from my school to the middle school. He had retired. I think it was for a year to two years at that point. And then the day when I went there, he was there, just happened to be subbing. Like one of two days during the course of a year. So it's just like, hey, what are the chances? But it just, it made me realize how often or how many times I went through life not appreciating the people that made a difference. And so that's what I wanted to change is really thank the people who have helped me get here. Because if it wasn't for those people, I don't think I would be the person that I am. Now, it, it, as cliche as it sounds, if it wasn't for this interview, who knows, right? Who knows who's going to listen to it? Who knows what words they're going to listen to? Who knows the state they're going to be in when they listen to it? So it's just all of these things, I think, add up. And I'm realizing that for a number of years, I used to focus that on this concept of a stage that only perform when you're on the stage. 
Well, the reality of the matter is every opportunity you get to engage with, uh, with, with someone, you're on the stage. Mm. Whether that's a grocery store, parking lot, this, physical stage, whatever it is, it's an opportunity to impact someone else's life. It's an opportunity to shift their own perspective. Once that click, my life changed. Mm. Then it's then I started to look at life as far as I have a, an opportunity to impact someone else's life regardless of what the stage is. I might walk out of here and probably the first person I'll see is Mike and thank him mm. for his time and what he does. I mean, this, is a, this was probably a dream of his once upon a time. Yeah, thank and you, Mike. What, and look what he did. <laughs> yeah. Just all from an idea. Yeah, Mike and Grant, they're partners together here and we're so grateful for him. Mm -hmm. We've had some of the most powerful conversations of my life in this room. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I'm, <laughs> including I'm, this one. Yeah, including mm -hmm. this one. It's been really powerful. I'm really, really grateful for you. I want to respect your time. I know you have friends and everything else. Mm -hmm. um, I'm going to ask you, I think, to close in a special way. So people hang on for that. I'm going to pitch the ball to you, toss the ball to you. Mm -hmm. But uh, but I do want uh, people, just tell people where they can follow you, where they can find you, how they can support you, uh, how they can get involved. Overcomingodds.today mm -hmm. is the first place where people can start. And even the the description behind the name is that I believe that transformation can start today. Mm. It doesn't have to wait until tomorrow. So I think the journey can begin today. That's the first place. And outside of it, it's just an invitation to all of the people who are going to be listening to an event we're putting together in Austin, Texas, October 7th through 9th, called Survive to Thrive, Face Your Fears. Mm. It's all about helping people identify their fears, helping people break their limiting beliefs, their narratives they tell to themselves, and ultimately shift them into a story that serves them. So a three-day experience, be 12, 12 different speakers, four per day, but all as an opportunity for people to change their own story, change their own narrative. But outside of that, personally, for me, LinkedIn, and I, I tell this to every single person I ever have a conversation with, there is no such thing as a stupid question. Mm. Whatever the questions you have about your own journey or transformation, just ask. If I don't know an answer, I'm sure the two of us can figure it out together. It's mm. really great. There was, um, Amy, do you have anything before I ask him to close <laughs> in a certain way that he doesn't know about yet? No. <laughs> <laughs> so on, in your TEDx talk, there was a part that I just did it uh, with you and with the audience. Um, and you, it was, I think with the second point, but then you also kind of closed out that way. Mm -hmm. So that'd be beautiful. No matter where someone is, maybe they're at this thing in this moment in time, they're listening to us and they're thinking, I don't know if I have it in me to overcome this thing, but he, his story, he overcame this and that, and so much more. Um, you had a part where you're saying, imagine a better day. Yes. I think. I thought you could maybe just speak to the one person that we hope that this really encourages and helps impact and maybe helps them change their life, change their story today. How would you take them out? For me, it starts with really imagining that, like as I was talking in a TED Talk, that perfect day. Mm. And that's what does that look like? Who's there with you? What does it feel like? I'm a huge believer in visualization. I think that being able to see something before it actually takes place is probably even more powerful than having to experience it firsthand. And once I started to understand that 
there is something powerful about being able to see that vision. I mean, even for the two of you, right? You're, you're sitting here across from me and what is that moment? You're wanting to grow, whether it's your business, your personal lives, what is that thing? And then who's standing beside you? Who are those people that have helped you get to that point? For me, whenever I think of that moment, I can't help but tear up because it, it helps me realize that there is always someone helping me open doors whenever I'm aware of it or not. And being able to ask for help has been something that also helped me tremendously in, in creating that perfect day. So who is that person that you can ask for help? That took me many years to understand that I could actually ask for help. I don't know if you can relate, but oh, yeah. as a male asking for help, it is a challenge. So I just encourage anyone who's going to be listening to this that help is always there. It may not always appear in the form that you want it to appear, but it's always available. And so whether that's a close friend or a parent or a complete strangers, just don't be afraid to ask because you never know what you might receive. Mm. I'm really grateful that for that. So as we wrap up, maybe uh, listeners, please uh, close your eyes, take a moment, and just imagine that. Imagine you stepping into that perfect day, that best day. I'm really grateful, man. The premise of this show or kind of our statement is you, me, we have overcome a hundred percent of our darkest days. Mm -hmm. And um, thank you. And we have. Yeah, we we're have. still here. <laughs> yeah, we have. And we're still here. And yeah, breath in our lungs, beating hearts in our chest. And I'm just, I'm really grateful that you have gone through your darkest days, but now you're shining your light. You're sharing your love with this world, with our listeners. Very grateful for you. Thank you. Thank yeah. you for having me on. Thanks Thank for being you. Here. Hey, don't forget to send your overcome stories to overcome podcast at gmail.com and also rate review, subscribe and follow overcome with Justin Wren.